what makes you believe that anyone actually wants to pay for this thing? <laughs> and maybe maybe they're not trying to build a business. And that's, you know, that's a different thing. Like we can all work on side projects for our own edification or learning. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, the first couple SaaS products that I built really went nowhere because I sort of got excited about the technology. I got excited about writing code, designing interfaces, doing all those things. And I omitted the one really critical piece that I was just touching on, which is actually talking to customers and ensuring that like, do you have a plan to get this in the hands of, of users? And, and are you sure people really want to pay for this thing? My name is Derek Reimer, and I'm the founder of SavvyCal. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Derek Reimer built the latest tool to make calendar scheduling not feel weird. All this and more on Code Story. Derek Reimer got his first computer in kindergarten. His dad was a mechanical engineer, but at home he tinkered with code, and Derek was always interested in the projects he was working on. In junior high, he learned DOS basics and started to make games, and he found it was really fun to write utilities and tools for people. And, funny enough, he tinkered with accounting software and tried to replicate Quicken. Even still, he ignored coding as a career path. He majored in math in college and wasn't sure how he wanted to apply it. He needed more creativity than most math jobs offered at the time. After college, he discovered the Basecamp team and their perspective on building software. And it was at that moment that his interest in tech and entrepreneurship merged together. For fun, he loves to do a lot of things. Hiking, road cycling, playing a bit of tennis here and there. He also enjoys cooking and coffee, but not just drinking coffee. He's gotten into hobbyist coffee roasting with a popcorn popper. He likes to play around with the beans, the equipment, and overall tinkering with making the perfect cup. After collecting dust in his notebook, in the list of markets which he knew well, he decided to venture forward to make a better calendar scheduling work tool, based on his anxiety using this type of product and his desire to level up the status quo. This is the creation story of SavvyCal. So SavvyCal is a scheduling tool Listeners may be familiar with tools like Calendly. It's kind of the big the big behemoth in this space. But basically, it helps you be able to send a scheduling link to another person that represents times that you're available to meet. And then the other person can use that interface to, to select a time. And then it puts a calendar invite on everyone's calendar. And maybe if you're like doing it over Zoom, it'll spin up a, a Zoom meeting and attach that so that there's a place to meet. I've kind of been... Um, familiar with this this type of tool for a while. Um, so I kind of mentioned this already, but Drip was the company that I spent much of the last decade building, and it was marketing automation software. And one of the first integrations that we built uh, was basically uh, an integration with Calendly that allowed someone to send a scheduling link, say for like a product demo or something. And then when someone booked a time, it would send an event over to Drip and put that on their profile. And then you could trigger different automations based off of that. So kind of automating that workflow around around scheduling. And so I was kind of familiar with like this this type of tool. I, I've used it a bunch for customer interviews and um, just meeting with, with other like partners and investors or whatever. 
So it sort of has been floating around in idea notebooks about like I, an exercise that I regularly do when I'm when I'm thinking about you know what what type of projects to be working on is I kind of keep these running lists of tools that have been in my tool chain that I kind of understand. I understand the the market, the type of people that use them, and so this one had been in my notebook for a while. And basically, I, I kind of recognize some interesting. Uh, interesting things, dynamics around this type of product. Big ones being that I always had a ton of anxiety when I was going to use a scheduling tool because, as a maker, I'm I care a lot about keeping my calendar pretty protected. You know, so if I'm going to send something that gives someone a window into when I'm available to meet, I'm always very hesitant. Like, are they going to potentially? you know drop a meeting right in the middle of my day and cause that to be an unproductive day or if i'm like trying to do a whole round of calls with people and i send like i email out a link is this just going to completely wreck my calendar and that's always it's sort of a, a it's a difficult problem to solve because it's like you can only do so much if you're going to if you're going to offer up times to somebody they're going to pick a time and it's going to potentially be bad but i was like i feel like products can do a better job of making someone like me feel better about being able to send out a link. And so that was kind of one problem. Second problem was that there's this weird dance that always happens where um, people feel hesitant to send them. Some people feel really offended when you send a scheduling link. Like, oh, you're putting the work on me. You're going to make me work with your system to find a time. And so usually, usually you find that like the person who's in the who's more in the making the ask type of position um you know never gets to send a scheduling link and i get it like there's etiquette and there's kind of these like the art of making a, a good ask of somebody in a way that feels respectful but i think i was like I, I feel like a product can do a better job of making this feel more collaborative so that it's not like a i'm pushing work onto your plate it's just that here's a place for us to collaborate together to find a time and so a couple of these like high level concepts floating around where I'm like, I feel like I can, I can really um, invest some time and energy into this and actually do better, like level up the status quo over what existing tools on the market um, are doing. Let's jump into the MVP. So tell me about the first version of Savvy Cal that you built, how long it took to build and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. I started working on it in around March of 2020. And then I think I onboarded my first customers in June or July. So it was just a couple of months. And that was one of my goals with this was to try to keep that keep that window of time as short as possible. I had recently worked on some projects where it took me about nine months to get something potentially usable. And that was just, that was painfully long. Like it, it, I was not willing to do that this time around. So I ended up going with a framework that I hadn't, I'd been working with for a couple of years, but I hadn't actually built like a full scale production product in. So I'm the, the main product is written in Elixir. And I spent, uh, Drip was a Ruby on Rails application monolith. Um, so pretty, just writing a ton of Ruby code for that. And I feel like to me, understanding kind of how Elixir came about as a language, it sort of, I think it sort of came out of like Jose Valim, who was on the Rails core team and saw all the ways that like, 
Ruby on Rails was good and also like how you had to constantly fight against the language and there were a lot of efficiency problems and uh, performance issues that you could work around. You could always throw more money, more hardware at it. But like, I felt like, I feel like Elixir is kind of a response to that. So like taking the good parts of Ruby and the nice aesthetics and, and applying them to a functional paradigm built on Erlang. So it's just inherently more performant and built for like parallelism and high scale. And even though I don't necessarily need the high scale part of it, like I'm, I'm de very much in the camp of like, you don't need to prematurely optimize or pick things that can go, you know, Google level scale or something like that. It still helps that like, I can still power Savvy Cal on one Heroku dyno right now. And, and it handles any kind of concurrency I've thrown at it so far, it handles it like a champ. So um, I'm pretty happy with that choice. Okay, with any MVP, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about, okay, I'm going to accept this technical debt or I'm going to cut this feature. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make with Savvy Cal and how you coped with them. So first I kind of, I had, I tried to nail down the scope as tight as I could because, uh, you know, you're trying to get this out in a reasonable amount of time and not spend time on things where that potentially don't matter, right? So, so I'm I've always been a believer that like an MVP should be, ideally, it should be still the kernel of a product that you can keep building on and not be a throwaway. Um, so that was one of my one of my goals was to make this you know a, a foundation for a product that I can continue to build on and not have to start over from scratch once I validate that it's that the market wants it. Um, and so, you know, picking picking technology like Elixir that I knew I, I wanted to build on, and then. You know, I, I determined like the big the big areas of differentiation that I wanted to focus on first was making the interface um, feel more collaborative and more like a calendar. And so I spent a lot of time kind of working on the front end piece of it actually. So the front end is is a lot of React, but it's actually a it's actually a monolithic application. So I have the option to server-side render pages where it's just like a basic form or something. And then on, on the pages where I need it to be more highly interactive, then basically the entire page is just a React component. And so I kind of gave myself like this permission to not um, not over-engineer things for for the, the, the purest solution. Um, I, I've made that mistake in the past where like, I the previous project before this was a product called Level, and I wanted to build the whole thing, whole front end in Elm. It's a, it's sort of like Haskell, but it compiles down into JavaScript, and it's like a heavy, heavy type system. So it's very, it helps you in many ways to write very correct code. But what I found with that was that slowed me way down because so many things where it's just like if I could just use JavaScript, it would be so fast and so easy. Like I was having to rebuild a bunch of stuff. There wasn't a huge library ecosystem. And so I determined like I enjoyed my time in Elm, but it was also a mistake for a first version of a product. Like it was way too, way too heavy. And I didn't know it well enough. Maybe if I was more proficient in it, it would have been a better choice, but for an MVP, not, not a good idea in my circumstances. So I, I basically focused a lot of my energy into kind of getting the front end experience dialed in. I picked a library to use for the calendar interface and invested a ton of time into that. And then everything else in the back end was pretty, pretty simple to start. It was like, what are the key flows that people need to be able to do? They need to be able to send a link to somebody, show an interface, that person needs to be able to click a, click a time slot and fill in their email address and click schedule. And then it needs to create create an event on Google Calendar. And I determined Google Calendar was like what 
probably 80% of people um, in my immediate reach were using. So it's like focus on that one integration and that kind of end-to-end -end experience. And as soon as I could do that, um, I basically, during this time, while I was building the MVP, I was also having kind of in constant communication with customers. So I had a landing page up. I had kind of the, the value proposition of it thrown out there in the world. And I was sort of talking publicly about this, sharing it on Twitter and kind of building up a, a list of people who were interested. And so I was trying to have regular conversations with those folks to figure out what do they really care about? What what would it take for them to get switched over? And um, with as with most MVP, you kind of have to ship it and invite people in earlier than you're comfortable with, which is definitely what I what I pushed myself to do this time around. You said you focused on the UI aspect. Um, was there anything that helped you build that faster? Did you use anything like Tailwind or any sort of you know libraries there, or were you just doing it all custom? Yeah, I'm a big big fan of Tailwind. I've been using Tailwind for a couple of years, and to me, it just feels like by and large, the most productive front-end environment that I've ever worked with. So I kind of, I've always enjoyed going straight from like sketches in a notebook straight into the final medium in HTML. I don't usually enjoy going through like Sketch or Figma because it just kind of feels like I'm putting a lot of effort into high fidelity designs only to have to retranslate that into, into something else. And for me, switching over to Tailwind when I started playing with it a couple years ago, it was really kind of an eye-opening, um, eye-opening experience. And and I've also purchased Tailwind UI. And my goal has been to like, I don't want Savvy Kel to feel like uh, a completely stock pre-designed app. Like I want it to have kind of a custom, a custom feel with its own personality. But I've definitely harvested a lot out of Tailwind UI, especially for like things like form elements and the way you know kind of the, the, the very native feeling way that, that uh, text inputs work and stuff like that. Um, so that's been a, a really helpful resource to just not have to reinvent all that stuff and just kind of pull things out of their component library. So from there, you got your MVP, you've got your core set of features where you're staying close to the market, you're talking to people. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? And, and how did you you know, build a roadmap and decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. After shipping the MVP, got, got, you know, real world users using the product. And as soon as one of the nice things about this product is as soon as people started using it, it started like being shared with other people implicitly because at the bottom of every scheduling link says scheduling by Savvy Cal. So sort of has this viral loop component built in. That's how I heard about it. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it's it's after like studying kind of how um, other tools in this space have grown like that is they usually cite that as like the number one kind of growth lever for them. And so kind of my I feel like my goal, my um, goal with with on the marketing front is to just provide enough like kindling for that fire and get, you know, do put my effort into getting more people using the product. But ultimately, like once you have kind of a critical mass. The hope is that it will sort of have this kind of self-spreading nature to it. And so that has sort of kicked in to a certain degree. It's it's difficult to track exactly because attribution has never been harder, in, especially in a world where we're increasingly becoming, um, you know, concerned about privacy, digital privacy, and not like being aggressively tracked and cookied and stuff. So it's pretty difficult to, to track user journeys these days. But um, now we have to fall back a lot of, on kind of qualitative data for that kind of asking people anecdotally like how'd you hear about us and stuff like that so um 
so yeah, so you know, kind of the product started started off slowly, um, inviting people from from the launch list who were interested uh, in using it, and basically tried to. My goal through that whole process was to make sure I was still learning. So as soon as it felt like the learning was slowing down, I knew it was time to invite more people, and um, and so gradually made it through the list. And by the time I hit, I think it was early September, I had made it through that list, and I knew it was time to like um, just kind of open it up to to the world and and let anyone who wants to come to the website sign up to do that. And and that was good. Like I I think. One thing I did do was I held off on like the big, big splash launch for a couple of months after opening it up because um, there were definitely use cases that I hadn't thought of or just things that that surfaced as like important features to build that obviously didn't make it into the MVP because not everything can. And that was a really um, helpful thing to do to not like go try to present this thing to the world before I have like a nice solid base of users um, already using the product. And so we did like a, we did a product hunt launch in January and that's what kind of really gave us a, a solid um, introduction to the world and a nice like base of MRR. Um, and I think, you know, your mileage vary, everyone's mileage varies with, with product hunt for a lot of products. It's not a great launching place for this one. It happened to be, I think, because it's just sort of a, sort of a horizontal tool, sort of generic. A lot of people can can use it, and so it kind of fit well with the product and audience. But it definitely served me well to kind of wait, um, wait a couple of months after technically going public um, before before launching it on there. So you, you're taking on Calendly, right? Tell, tell me a little bit about that um, and, and how you wanted to... What what um, gave you the drive to go take on Calendly? Uh, because I can't wait, and, and honestly, I, I'm a little embarrassed. I haven't tried the tool out yet, and I use Calendly. I can't wait to go try it now. So what what gave you that drive to do it? It's interesting that um, something I've observed about technology companies is, you know, they most of them start out as a kind of classic startup where you, you build your MVP and, and you're really scrappy and maybe you have a really small team building it. Maybe you raise some funding. In this case, I think Calendly doesn't have like traditional venture capital, right? And so you're kind of the, the hot new <laughs> cool kid on the block, uh, kind of upsetting the older guard of tools, right? And, uh, and so you, you kind of get your traction early and then you solidify whatever place you're gonna have in the market, you kind of you kind of achieve that. And in the case of Calendly, they have sort of um, solidified a pretty a pretty solid spot in the market, I would say. Uh, I think they I think they crossed hundred million in revenue this last year. So like they're doing doing very well. But something that I observe about about companies like this that kind of reach the you know hundred to two hundred person headcount range and you've been in the market for a while and now you have you know many hundreds of thousands of people using your product is that you sort of get a little bit calcified. You sort of get, you get in this place where like, now you're, you're, not, a, you're not a tiny little um, sailboat anymore. You're, you're kind of the Titanic and like steering that and, and innovating and staying really closely in tune with what your customers want becomes increasingly difficult. And that's sort of the trade-off of being, of being a bigger, larger established player. It's like you sort of, you sort of get, get wedged into um, you know, the, the paradigm of your product and like, hundreds of thousands of people rely on your interface not changing a whole lot or else you might screw something up for them and 
that's that's a challenging place to be in. I we drip never got that big while I was there, but um, but I definitely noticed, like I sensed this over time, that like certain pieces of the product were were much harder to change five years in than they were in the first you know six months to a year. And for anyone who's like starting something new, that's that's your advantage to seize on, right? Is your ability to to stay really nimble and to to hopefully hone in on like a niche of the market that really cares about certain things and have kind of common a common set of concerns that are not being well addressed by the larger incumbent. And and if you can identify those, you can really latch onto something powerful and you can kind of run circles around around the larger incumbent who would love to be able to be nimble, but they just can't by the nature of their size, you know? And and I think that's that's what I kind of recognized in in um, kind of the, the more established tools in this space is there are a lot of them that that seem to not be really moving the needle much on innovation these days they're sort of sort of set with status quo and so you know as a startup I think the best thing you can do is try to is try to really like give a 5 to 10x improvement over what the incumbents are doing and um, and so that's, that's what I'm trying to do well, let's switch to team so uh, how big is your team right now? My team is currently just um, me full-time, like full-time employee of my own company. And then I have a part-time contractor who kind of leads up um, growth. His name's Corey Haynes. He came from, um, formerly from Bear Metrics, and he's kind of a, he runs swipe files these days and has a bunch of podcasts. So he's, he's doing a lot of things. And fortunately he was available for some, uh, for some part-time consulting work. Uh, I started working with him in November, so this was before we did our our launch, and he's been it's been really helpful having someone like him on board. Um, you were asking me earlier about kind of how we how we have progressed and grown, and a big piece of this was like going through a positioning exercise. Um, April Dunford's book, obviously awesome, is a really good resource for this, um, where she kind of talks about like how to some frameworks for like talking to your customers, your market, and figuring out what words to use to describe your product will resonate the most. And um, this work is really important to do if you want to try to like, want to try to nail your your copy and your positioning as, as much as possible before doing a big launch of some kind. Um, and so I have Corey, and then I just actually hired a, um, a firm that provides um, outsourced support, basically. And so um, company's called Xfusion, and I have um, a support rep. His name is Reggie, and he's getting onboarded and kind of helping out with that that end of things. Our our support burden isn't huge right now, but I know as we continue to grow and get even more kind of folks who are newer to these types of tools in the door, there's going to be more, uh, you know, a, a higher support volume. So getting him ramped up now to uh, ahead of that. Super lean team. At some point, right, you'll have to focus on I think you'll have to focus on growing, right? Scaling with people. So when you do that, what will you look for in those people to, to indicate they're the winning horses to join you? So it's it's interesting because we're coming out of a pandemic right now, right? Where where so many um, so many people, companies are like are are becoming aware that of how how to do remote work right <laughs> you know and it's becoming this increasingly accepted thing um and i've been a remote worker you know pretty much my whole career um for a period of time we had we had an office and we would come together um in the early days of drip 
it was kind of just me and my co-founder and we would kind of meet up at coffee shops or in his backyard. And then when we started to grow, um, we had a tiny little office and a group of us would come into the office. And honestly, that was kind of the most magical time. If I think back on like, on like the real formative time in the company and, and when we got some of the most fulfilling work done, it was when we could spend a couple days in the office together. And so I'm thinking now this is just a, this is a moment in time where my brain is at right now. And this may be, this may change, <laughs> but like what I'm, what I'm thinking about right now is, is actually trying to, um, trying to find someone who is potentially local, um, that is willing to, you know, work a couple of days, still flexible, still having, you know, affording all the flexibilities that, that can come with, with being a software developer and being able to work anywhere. Um, but like, by default, be spending a couple days in the office together where we can um, we can stand in front of a whiteboard and we can work on on interesting nitty gritty challenges, you know, in real life, maybe go, uh, you know, grab happy hour after work or something for a little bit of team bonding. And I think that's um, I think that's something that I aspire to kind of cultivate in, in this company at some point when I get there. Um, and what that means is like making deliber deliberately making the trade off that Maybe I won't hire, you know, the the absolute best fit for the job across on a global scale. Maybe it just means like finding a developer who has good communication skills, maybe doesn't even know Elixir yet, but has an interest in it and has has a good work ethic and, you know, is a good culture fit. And and if all those things align, then I think that might make a really good hire, even if they're not, you know, the foremost expert on Elixir that's available to be hired, uh, you know. Well, let's, let's talk about scalability. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you going to be fighting this as you grow? The hope is that I'm not going to be fighting it too hard. And I feel like, I feel like the biggest, um, the biggest help that I gave myself was picking Elixir um, because it is just inherently, inherently a bit more scalable than something like Ruby. Um, and, and also like, I'm always comparing, you know, this experience to my prior experiences. Right. And, and my previous company drip was like a fairly high scale app from kind of day one. Cause we took in a lot of analytics data, you know, people would install the little JavaScript thing on their website and then we would record every visitor to their website in the database. And so in that product, within the span of a couple months, we had, you know, tables with millions of records in them and growing very quickly. And we were trying to query across those and segment, you know, basically join against a subscriber's table and perform all kinds of complex segmentation. And it was sort of a nightmare, honestly, to, to, to build, especially as a kind of young engineer, like not having, you know, experience in building high scale systems. Um, and so this time around, I mean, that was also one of my kind of filtering criteria as an entrepreneur on putting my business hat on figuring out the type of the type of product that I wanted to build like I knew based on all of my goals and the type of company I wanted to build I didn't want it to be extremely high scale and so my hope is that I can just kind of keep you know organically um, scaling this thing and, and staying on platform as a service as long as possible I don't want to I don't want to spin up my own AWS instances if I if I can avoid it at all <laughs> and just uh, outsource that piece of it to uh, to a company like Heroku that that kind of can do all the DevOps for me, um, ideally. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built with Savvy Cal, what are you most proud of? I think so far with Savvy Cal, I am most proud of 
how simple the tool has stayed um, because this is something that I'm trying to, th there's a constant tension because on the one hand, this product is naturally being kind of built for folks who feel like they want something more powerful than what the simpler, more popular tools on the market are providing today. And so it's balancing kind of this, like providing power user features, but in an interface that is hopefully even more user-friendly than, than what the simpler tools are offering. Because I'm sort of hearing that's sort of a, a, a um, you know, two kind of equal demands from the market is like, I feel like they feel like the interfaces that they're dealing with right now are clunky and they're not, it, it's hard for them to achieve their goals with other scheduling tools, but at the same time, like they want more power. And so I think it's been, for me, it's been a stretching experience. Like I always, I've enjoyed kind of doing the full stack, um, you know, like designing interfaces and writing the backend code. Like I, I derive a lot of joy from that, but it's definitely been kind of a stretching and growing experience for me to, to, you know, have to spend so much time kind of working on refining the, the front end and the user experience side of it. So what does the future look like for Savvy Cal, the product and for your team? Future is hopefully um, a, a nice small team of us that's not, not having to grow too quickly. Um, you know, servicing a product that is hopefully growing much more quickly than headcount size on the revenue side. <laughs> and um, and just continuing to, to really advance the status quo forward on, on scheduling front. Um, I think we've seen some really good traction so far. And um, and yeah, the, the, tr the tricky thing is keeping that, um, keeping that momentum going without kind of losing control of, of the calm work environment that I enjoy right now. Um, but hopefully we can we can maintain that as as long as possible. So let's switch to you, Derek. Who influences the way that you work? Maybe a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. I'd say a person who's probably had the most influence on my career um, is actually my my co-founder with Drip, Rob Walling. Um, he's kind of an, a known member of the of the kind of independent startup space. He's a podcaster on Startups for the Rest of Us, and he's written a book. It was actually fun. I, I got to meet Rob really early on in my career. He happened to live in Fresno, and I was living in um, in the Fresno area at the time in California. And um, he was just kind of getting involved in kind of the local local tech scene, and that was around the same time that I was really starting to explore explore the industry. And um, I met him through this uh, this kind of startup competition. It's called 59 Days of Code, where you build a prototype of a product in the span of 59 days, and then you showcase it. And Rob was like one of the judges on that on the panel <laughs> at that competition, and I was uh, I was competing in it. And we sort of struck up a friendship through that. He kind of recognized that I was building, I was aiming to build the type of business that he was really, um, that he had built before and was continuing to build. And so we just sort of got along and aligned on, on those fronts and also became friends. And, um, I think I, I really look up to Rob because he, he has a way of, of like being very introspective and analytical about like why certain things work in building software and in building, um, companies that I think, you know, sometimes Sometimes there are people who who just kind of find success or success just happens to find them and they don't really know why. And and sometimes 
that's dangerous. It's dangerous to hear advice from someone who hasn't really, you know, had the opportunity to like, to really dig deeper and, and kind of go through some trials and trying to find success, you know, and, and kind of learn, learn the hard way. And I feel like, um, I feel like Rob has definitely learned a lot of lessons the hard way and really has like sound advice to teach on that. And I've been fortunate to just be kind of, kind of friends with him and colleagues of his for, for a number of years. And, um, and owe a lot to Rob for, for where I'm at today. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? So I'll kind of briefly tell the story of the product that I was working on right before, uh, right before I started working on Savvy Cal. It was a product called Level. I alluded to it already, the one that had the Elm front end, right? Um, so coming off of my, my, my exit with Drip, I, uh, I, was feeling ambitious. I was feeling like like I was ready to take on a, a new challenge. Greenfield development hadn't really done Greenfield for a number of years, so I was very anxious and, and eager to get started. I think I, I think I launched the landing page for Level one week after leaving um, leaving Drip officially. So I really had no downtime between the two. And Level was a was a competitor um, with Slack, and so again, it's like another example of something competing with a large incumbent. Uh, but there are a lot of things different about this. So, so people were, you know, expressing to me that like they were dissatisfied with Slack because it was interruptive and it and it was not a great way to organize team communication. Which I still believe in many respects, it's it's not ideal. Um, and so there was kind of I was sensing this growing trend, right? And I had a bunch of conversations. I even took pre-sales. Did felt like I was doing all the things right, and. Um, and then I spent many, many months building kind of the first version of this product. And when it came time to like actually put it in the hands of customers, I could really not, not convince anyone to actually adopt it on their team. And so that was a, a really uh, humbling experience. It was, a, it was a great learning experience in how like, in just how difficult it is to get truly unbiased um, information from people, especially when people are rooting for you. They want you to succeed. So when you pitch your product to them or tell them about what you're working on, of course, they're going to want to be supportive and, and um, you know, and validate your assumptions. But, uh, but that's really dangerous. Like if you're not actually um, taking a rigorous approach to, you know, making sure that people actually want the thing that you're building. Um, the number one book that I recommend for this is called The Mom Test. Uh, by Rob Fitzpatrick, and uh, basically he gives you a framework where, like, you could even validate a new product idea with your own mom, who's most likely to lie to you to save your emotions. And uh, it's a it's a really good read. Well, last question, Derek. So you're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a few times? I would ask them, what makes you believe that anyone actually wants to pay for this thing? <laughs> and maybe maybe they're not trying to build a business. And that's, you know, that's a different thing. Like we can all work on side projects for our own edification or learning. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think um, it's so common that, and because I, I know because I've fallen into this trap, like early on in my career, um, the first couple SaaS products that I built um, really went nowhere because I sort of got excited about the technology. I got excited about writing code, designing interfaces, doing all those things. And I omitted 
the one really critical piece that I was just touching on, which is actually talking to customers and ensuring that like, do you have a plan to get this in the hands of, of users? And, and are you sure people really want to pay for this thing? And so that's probably, that would be the one area that I would, that I would push any, um, you know, eager, young, um, budding entrepreneur who's really passionate about code is to, uh, to get out of that cave, get, get out of the coding cave and, uh, make sure to, uh, to talk to customers. Awesome. Well, Derek, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Savvy Cal. Thanks for having me, Noah. It was fun. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.